The beauty of entrepreneurship is like, maybe no one solved that problem you're trying to solve, but people have been through that journey. Fundraising is not a new thing. Hiring is not a new thing. Marketing is not a new thing. That's another thing I would say that really is important for any entrepreneur is be okay to ask for help. Other entrepreneurs and founders are super excited to help newer founders and newer entrepreneurs because I, man, I've learned so much from all the mistakes I've made. I want you to benefit from that, right? And so I think just, you know, being open to conversations and talking to people and asking questions and kind of being a sponge is super Welcome into Studying Success. On this podcast, I interview investors and entrepreneurs who tell us about their life, the ins and outs of their industries, and the different ways that they have found success. Jay, it's so good to see you. Thank you so much for coming on the pod. Well, thanks for having me. When I was doing a little research for the pod, I saw that you've done a ton of podcasts in the past. And I just want to preface that I am no Guy Raz, but (laughs) (laughs) I I will try to do my best. Awesome. Okay. So Jay, tell me about Rinse. Sure. Yeah. Rinse, you know, in its simplest form, we do pickup and delivery of dry cleaning and laundry. I started Rinse in early 2013 with one of my best friends from college. He had actually grown up in dry cleaning. I was looking to start a company where I was addressing a consumer pain point, removing friction from an existing experience and bringing technology to old school industries. And, you know, we sort of came together and the bells went off in our head that this was interesting to test. And for us, you know, I can talk a bit about when we tested in a bit, but just generally we realized early on there was a real problem to solve where on the consumer side, there were a lot of pain points when it came to dry cleaning or it came to laundry. We call it death by a thousand cuts, a lot of little points of friction along the way. And we thought, hey, there's a real opportunity to use technology technology and process to remove that friction, create a seamless experience, provide one simple solution for everything in the closet. But then also given James, my co-founder had grown up in dry cleaning, we knew that there were a lot of really good cleaners out there and they just didn't know how to find customers. And so we thought, hey, can we work with the best cleaners, let them do what they do best, which is clean the clothes and then take care of everything else. And by solving pain point for consumers, solving pain points for cleaners, build this system that we could then grow into becoming a household name and the dominant national brand. And so that's sort of been the journey we've been on. What prompted you to think of this idea? Was it James and his experience growing up or was it specific research into this dry cleaning sector, like you said, of bringing in new technology into this sector? It's a little bit of all that. So I've been doing consumer startups for a while. And at the time, I knew I was going to start my own company. And so I was doing exploration into what I wanted to do. And you know, for me, the way I thought about it was it was this inner intersection of what am I really excited about? What am I an expert in? And then where is there a market opportunity? And I found myself getting really excited about solving consumer pain points for the really busy professional. And so as an expert, that was my expertise was like, man, I've always worked really long hours in consulting, private equity, other roles, and I've always been too busy just to take care of basic things. And so I found myself gravitating towards trying to to solve for that. And I was really excited about the trends that were out there at the time. You know, the iPhone was ubiquitous. Uber was blowing up. There were other startups that were coming in to try to solve those pain points. And so I actually had a bunch of ideas I was testing and playing around with. Uh, But then one day I got breakfast with James, who is one of my best friends from college. He was a healthcare guy working on healthcare startup ideas, and we had been ideating with each other. And he started the breakfast kind of saying, hey, 
I got this idea that I can't get out of my head, but like, could we do something in dry cleaning? And it was one of those moments for me where all the bells went off because dry cleaning and laundry, it fit what I was looking at, you know, consumer pain points, old school industries. But then James had this really unique insight of having grown up in dry cleaning. He had just come from his parents' store and he saw that it was quiet. There were no customers and he was wondering if there was a way to help them. And that's where the conversation started of like, whoa, this is exciting. But then after that, you don't go from idea to, you know, you have a company. It actually takes a lot of work. And so advice I had gotten early on when I was looking at different ideas was to gauge my own personal excitement and to say like, okay, I'm excited now, but am I excited in a week and a week later and a week later? And if you can't maintain that excitement early on, there's no way you can do it for 10 years. I'm 10 years in now almost. And, you know, you have to continue to build that excitement because the journey of building a company is really hard. And so what we did is we started doing research and we started, you know, thinking about different ways to test this. And and every time I kind of learned more about the pain points or learned more about even like going to James's parents' store and learning how dry cleaning worked, I got more and more excited. We actually ran a test a week or two after the first conversation where we picked up clothes for 11 of our friends. We cleaned them at James's parent shop and we delivered them back. And, you know, James was driving the car. I was the valet. I was riding shotgun. I'd get the bag. I'd run up to the door, get the clothes. And we did all that work. But when we delivered the clothes back, we got this unanimous response from everyone of like, whoa, this is awesome. When are you guys coming back? And so we knew we were striking a chord. And so we took that as like, as a sign of, okay, there's something here, right? And we had all of these initial people actually pay. They had to actually pay us at cost. So it wasn't like, hey, we're doing this for free. And so there was a signal of like, wait, you were willing to pay us? We just kind of put this together over the course of a day. And so we actually went into the next phase, you know, I'd call need finding, where you kind of talk to as many people as you can. And what we did is we asked them about the last time they did dry cleaning or the last time they did laundry. And what we heard in those conversations was very consistent across the board. And it's the same thing we've heard for the last 10 years, right? It's just, it's not that there's one giant point of friction, but there's all these little points of friction in the experience. And so we knew from some of that need finding and understanding that research that there was a real pain point to be solved. And we kept getting more and more excited. And so we just kept building from there. And, you know, you fast forward to almost 10 years later, we started in three zip codes in San Francisco. We're now all over the Bay Area, LA, Washington, DC, Chicago, Boston, and New York. And the goal, you know, it's the same goal from the start, but it's to build a national brand and a household name. Where did you go from having those 11 people who paid you? Did you go straight to trying to get more customers and like, where did you go from there? The first 11 we served, I would view that as an MVP where we were like, hey, we're going to go do this. We would send a manual text before we arrived. We tested different times a day. Some people we picked up in the evening, some people we picked up in the morning. We tested various elements to it, sent an itemized receipt that we had made in Microsoft Excel, sent a confirmation of pickup email that itemized everything we picked up, which we thought was unusual. In the dry cleaning world, there's not a lot of transparency. We ran a lot of those tests right away. But then what we did was we realized, okay, there's something here. Let's build this. And so we, within a few weeks, we incorporated, we started mapping out like, what should this service look like? And the thing we knew was that, you know, with our type of service, it's a recurring need. Like you have laundry today, you're going to have it in a couple weeks. And so as we talked about it, we realized, hey, once we start this for real, we need to be able to keep doing it. And so we actually spent time, that was February, 2013, when we ran the test, basically between February, 2013 and May, 2013, we were putting the pieces together to actually turn this service 
focus on in a way where like, if you use this today, you could use this next week and you could use this week after. And so there was work to be done from a company building standpoint, whether it was incorporation, you know, picking the name. When we did the first test, our initial name was Rinse Me. You know, we had sort of narrowed in on rinse as a word we liked. But then as we were thinking about really incorporating and making this company happen and building a national brand, we narrowed in on rinse, a real word, what we liked. And at the time we had rinsenow.com as our initial domain. We were able along the lines to acquire rinse.com. But for us, it was about putting those pieces in place. Also, we knew we didn't want to necessarily work with James's parents. We wanted to actually make this working with cleaners that weren't family. And so we had to go find cleaners that we could work with. We had to sort of build this process out, think about pricing, think about some of the basic stuff. And then what we did was in May 2013, we signed up, I think, 10 of our friends in three zip codes in San Francisco. And that was what we called our home zone at the time. And basically we started with Sunday to Sunday pickup. We started with evening pickups only. We had learned in that early test that, you know, if you're five minutes late in the morning, you're going to ruin someone's day because they're rushing to work. But if you show up five minutes late in the evening, nobody cares. They're on their couch. They're just like, yeah, cool. And so, you know, there were some early learnings we had and we did a bunch of need finding. And one of the big questions we had to answer before we started was, should we be on demand? So this was at a time when Uber, Lyft, and some other on-demand companies were really, they're raising a lot of money. They were growing really fast. And a lot of smart people, investors, other entrepreneurs, you know, they told us we obviously have to be on demand. But when we had our need finding conversations, we tried to be very needs focused and solution agnostic. We would ask people, hey, tell us about the last time you did dry cleaning. And what we heard in those conversations was everybody had some element of a story where they're like, oh, shoot, my clothes are still at the dry cleaner. Or like, oh man, I still have that pile in my closet. Or, oh man, my clothes are in my trunk. I got to drop them off at some point. You know, what we took away from that was actually nobody needs on demand. They just need it done well and they need it to be easy, remove the friction. And so there was really important learning in that need finding experience before we actually launched to, to really develop then, you know, then the next iteration of the MVP where we're going to actually start regular service. And so the key is you put a stake in the ground and you say, hey, this is what I think this should look like based on what I know based on the research I've done, the feedback I've gotten, the testing. But then as you put the stake in the ground and you start executing, you got to keep listening to feedback and keep evolving and keep iterating. You can't be wedded to this is the perfect solution. And so as an example, you know, we started off only doing Sunday to Sunday because we said we don't want to be having to deliver every day. And one of our early customers was like, hey, you know, waiting a week for my clothes is a long time. Could you guys come back on Wednesday or something? And that made a lot of sense. So then we quickly became Sunday, Wednesday. We use text messaging. We still use it very heavily, but we used to text our customers early on and say, hey, rinse is coming by, you know, please reply. And if you don't want us to come by, because we wanted to build a route where we just showed up, you know, at your door for laundry day, for dry cleaning day. And one of our early customers said, hey, could I just text why and say like, yes, I want you to come by and then you'd come by. And that was brilliant because we didn't then have to show up and be like, hey, where's no one's here? Why is nobody here? Even till this day, you can still text why to rinse to create an order and schedule a pickup. So like that early feedback helped shape what the product is. What we did was we started with a handful of customers in May and then June, we added, you know, another seven customers, all friends or friends of friends. July, we added another handful. August, another handful. September 2013 was the first month where if you show showed up at rinse.com and we didn't know you, but you lived in one of those three zip codes and you signed up, we were going to serve you. You know, it took those sort of months of iterating and learning and testing and getting confident in the processes, the tools, the pricing, the messaging, all that sort of stuff. And then, you know, after that, we started kind of adding zip codes within San Francisco. And then, you know, you kind of fast forward and we evolved to seven days a week and multiple markets. And, but you got to start with things that don't scale and then figure out how to scale them and figure out, you know, what's really working and what's not. 
not. So you're, you're kind of constantly iterating on the idea. How did you reach your customers after launching? First, when we launched, again, it was we only let friends or friends of friends in. So it was a bit of word of mouth. I think what was interesting was, you know, when we started serving our initial wave of customers in May, all good friends, you know, of ours, we also on the side worked on this landing page that was just kind of a launch page. You know, there was this picture of a crisply ironed white shirt, which took us hours to find on one of the stock photography websites. But, you know, we put that up and we designed this page where if you showed up, you could put your email address in that said, hey, I'm interested. And, you know, one of the early alpha customers actually just posted on Facebook about rinse. And we woke up the next day with 300 emails. And we're like, whoa, there's something we're striking a chord here. There's something real. And that email list kept growing just through word of mouth. By the time September came around, there were probably a thousand plus emails on the list. And then we started doing some advertising. The thing is, you have to understand at that time, what we were doing was a super novel concept. Like the idea of getting your laundry and dry cleaning picked up at your door, cleaned and brought back was, even though there have been like companies who do this, like do routes, doing it through like a startup with technology was really new. And so anytime we advertised, it was very efficient early on. It, it gets harder as you scale. But ultimately, you know, for us, it was a lot of word of mouth. Early advertising was effective. You know, we got some press as just like one of the few companies that was doing this. And then you just kind of keep building on it. You know, as you scale and you become bigger, it's hard, right? You just, you have to develop, hopefully you have a really good product that gets people to talk about it or refer their friends. Hopefully you have a good marketing engine that allows you to capture people who are searching for laundry or dry cleaning delivery near them. You know, hopefully you can build a marketing engine to actually create awareness. Like there's still a lot of people that don't know a service like this exists, right? We're in all of our markets, we've grown a lot, but there's such big markets that there's so many people that we still have yet to reach. So it's just with marketing, there's this constant, you know, you have to constantly be thinking about how do I get the message out? How do I kind of have this drumbeat happening? But in the early days, it's really sign people up, have an amazing experience, hopefully get some word of mouth and then kind of build from there. At what point did you raise money and why did you think it was the right time to do that? We raised capital in 2013. So the first round we raised was only individuals, no institutions. So when you think about raising capital, oftentimes, you know, one, there's a question of should I raise capital? Should I not? But then the other question is who should I raise it from? And I think on the first one, you know, actually James and I invested our own capital early on to prove this out, to get to a point of conviction where we said, you know what, we're definitely doing this. We're going all in. Let's build this. Because what we didn't want to do was to take investor money, other people's money, unless we knew we were all in and we were committed to, you know, get that investor their return and build something with this. And so that was one thing. We knew we both had ambitions to build a big company, a national brand. And so raising capital was going to be part of it. So it wasn't if, it was more when. But then early on, we said, hey, let's only raise from individuals, not institutions, because institutional expectations are different than individual expectations. A lot of times, angel investors tend to be friends or just like they know what it's like at the super early stage. And they just want to be part of the journey and wish you good luck and be super supportive. And institutions, you know, their job is to make money and get a return. And so there's more pressure to grow or to expand or do things that, you know, we might not be ready for. And so early on, you know, we knew this was operationally a very complicated business. It was going to take a lot of work to figure out. And so we raised, starting in the summer of 2013, we started raising called a friends and family round. Basically, you know, people we knew, people we had worked with in the past, other angels we got introduced to. And over the course of about 12 months, we raised about a million dollars from only individuals, no institutions. And the reason to raise 
raise that capital was, you know, one, to build the team out. Our first hire in August 2013 was our third co-founder, Sam, who's our CTO, head of products, you know, still with us today. We knew we needed someone who can help with the technology. We added other hires. We wanted to test things like marketing. We wanted to invest in things like, you know, rinse laundry bags or, you know, whatever else we might need to provide this service. And so we knew we needed that early capital. Feedback was great early on. You know, investors were really receptive, really excited about what we were doing. We were able to raise that capital. We raised our first institutional round of capital in December 2014. And that one, you know, was a two and a half million dollars round. But that was sort of the, okay, the first step is like, we're ready to take outside capital because we believe in this. The second step of institution was like, okay, we believe that there's real traction here. There's a real customer response. And we're ready to take on that that sort of extra pressure of raising institutional capital to really go out and build this. And then we've raised subsequent rounds over the years to, you know, to support growth, support expansion, support hiring. I was looking on your website and and I saw that you offer both like a B2C service to people like me who just have laundry and need it cleaned. And then you also offer the same laundry services to businesses. What is that like to offer both a B2C and B2B business? And what advice would you have for doing both? Direct to consumer and B2B are very different and they require different muscles. You know, one, it's important to know that with Rinse, the vast majority of our revenue to date is direct to consumer. That's how we started. We pick up and deliver between 8 p.m. and 10 p.m. We're working with the end consumer. Uh, any sort of partnerships we've had in the past have typically been with apartment buildings or employers who are effectively a conduit to the end consumer, you know, so it's more of a marketing channel. Now that said, over the last year or two, we've started doing more B, like true B2B where we're not cleaning for the end consumer, we're actually cleaning for the organization. So, you know, whether it's a coffee shop that needs their employees' aprons cleaned uh, or a sporting event where we're cleaning towels and player laundry and things like that. You know, we have had a handful of B2B accounts. And it's interesting. It's a good question because because they're very different businesses, I think the advice I'd have is pick one and do it well, right? And figure out where the needs are that you're trying to solve. We are very much a direct-to-consumer business. Like we are solving for the end user's needs. I think as we've grown and scaled and learned a lot, what we've seen is that there's actually a really interesting opportunity in our world on the B2B side because there are many organizations, many different verticals where they need help with cleaning, you know, whether it's stores or, you know, employee uniforms or hospitals or hotels or like sporting events or things like that, that I mentioned, spas, gyms, whatever it might be. So there's a danger when you start going into B2B to do and trying to be all things to all companies, right? They're different. And the operational implications are different. And what we've seen is there's a big opportunity. There's a lot of people who need that sort of help. And there's never been a company in our space where you as a person who's like the decision maker trying to get cleaning done for your organization can work with one contact to service multiple locations, right? As Rins tries to build a national brand, that is one thing we're uniquely able to do. We're able to serve all of your locations in New York and LA and San Francisco and DC, right? So that's something that is really unique and we believe there's a big opportunity. Now that said, the other piece of advice is if you're going to go from doing direct-to-consumer and expanding to B2B, the thing that you have to really be careful about is the ripple effects and the implications of those deals. Because for Rins, as an example, we are a very operationally complicated business. The barriers to entry in our space are super low. The barriers to scale are super high because scaling quality and managing all of these moving pieces with delivery and cleaning and all that is very hard. And so what we need to be really cognizant of is as we take on B2B contracts and partnerships is to not have significant ripple effects in our operations. So what does that mean for rents? Well, we are evening 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. pickup and delivery. 
We're really good at evening delivery. We've built all of our tools and technology to support evening delivery. We hire people who are available in the evening. We are not very good at daytime delivery. If you want to do B2B well, you have to actually be ready to pick up and deliver during the day. And so effectively, as we start doing B2B, and we're actually in the middle of scaling this and investing behind it, you know, we're kind of building new muscles. And so on one hand, we need to make sure that as we do that, we don't rock the boat of the core business. But on the other hand, we do it in a way where we can allow ourselves to build those muscles and take on more. Because if we start looking a year, two years, three years, five years down the road, we want B2B to be a meaningful part of the business. So, you know, upfront, pick one, don't do both at the same time. But then I think as a company evolves and scales, if there's an opportunity to take on the other one, you know, do it in a way where you're not significantly impacting or detracting from your core business. What would you say have been the biggest challenges in building rents? The startup journey is challenging all around, right? I always joke that you get a punch in the gut every day when you're building a startup. But ultimately, the challenges are opportunities to learn and opportunities to get better. And so as long as you have a growth mindset, and you know, I call it the cost of education, when you make a mistake, as long as you're learning from it, you know, it can be valuable in terms of the overall journey. Challenges we faced along the way, you know, scaling challenges have certainly been part of it. We raised a lot of capital. We grew fast. We built out the team. You know, in 2019, we actually had to cut back some of the team, cut back some costs, focus on profitability. It was a hard period, but there were some really good learnings that have helped us get to where we are today. March 2020 came around. We were marching towards profitability. And, and then all of a sudden we lost a huge chunk of revenue because everyone stopped dry cleaning overnight uh, with COVID. And so, you know, navigating that was, unforeseen, but uh, we learned a lot and we handled that challenge and it made us stronger. And you know, now we're more in growth and expansion mode and we're looking to really add a bunch of new markets quickly and, and scale the business and scale the team. And that's a real challenge. You know, Scaling, the concept of growing pains is real. As you start building the team out and you have a mix of people who have survived COVID with you and other people who just started today, there's different understanding of where we've been and where we're going and the mentality. And it's really important for the team to, to build a lot of really strong systems of communication context, reporting, all that sort of stuff to make sure you're scaling appropriately. But you know, for me, I look at it as I very much have a growth mindset. I'm all about just learning. And so the challenges are fun. That's what makes the job fun because I have to scale myself faster than the business scales, which in itself is a huge challenge, right? Like at the beginning, it was starting a company in my living room. Now it's managing a much bigger team and, you know, many more markets and much more revenue and more investors and I have to keep scaling myself faster than we can scale rents. And that in itself is a challenge, but it's super exciting. And, and again, it goes back to what I said earlier. You're always kind of gauging your excitement in a startup. And I'm 10 years in and I'm still more excited today than I was the entire time I've been doing this. And so, you know, that's a good sign that I'm in the right spot for me. And I think if that excitement ever stops, then, you know, I have to rethink it. What resources like books or podcasts would you recommend to learn more about business or entrepreneurship? I think for me, it's like find things that excite you, find topics that when you read them, you're like this really excited or you listen to them and you're fired up. I mean, for me as someone who just loves entrepreneurship, you know, How I Built This is a great podcast. I love Tim Ferriss as a podcast. He has great guests and they're always really, you know, really thoughtful. There's a handful of others that, you know, I listen to here and there. From a book standpoint, I gravitate a lot to startup books. I read a lot of the startup books. I think one of the best books, which is not a startup book actually, is Andy Grove's book on high output management. You know, that might be a little bit, maybe wait till you're further along and you're actually managing, but it's an amazing book in terms of like guidance and how to manage. But I love reading 
startup books. I mean, you know, Ben Horowitz has written great ones, The Hard Thing About Hard Things, Scott Belsky, The Messy Middle, you know, Jim Collins, less of a startup book, but Good to Great is a great book. If you look at my Kindle, there's just like, it's all startup books. That's basically all I read. I think there's a lot you can do. But ultimately, I think also just having conversations, you know, talking to people who have done what you're doing, you know, that the beauty of specifically, if you're looking at entrepreneurship, the beauty of this path that we're on is like, maybe no one solved that problem you're trying to solve, but people have been through that journey, right? And people have made those mistakes. You know, fundraising is not a new thing. Hiring is not a new thing. Marketing is not a new thing. There are things that other people have done where you can really learn from just like being open to getting help, right? That's another thing I would say that really is important for any entrepreneur is be okay to ask for help, right? People want to help you. People are really supportive of, of others in the journey. Other entrepreneurs and founders are super excited to help newer founders and newer entrepreneurs because I, man, I've learned so much from all the mistakes I've made. I want you to benefit from that, right? And so I think just, you know, being open to conversations and talking to people and asking questions and kind of being a sponge is super important. And if your audience is earlier in their career or even, you know, in high school, as you kind of get older, being a sponge and just learning everything and being open to everything is so valuable. You know, it's hard to predict when that stuff will actually be super useful for you. But it, I tell you, everything I've learned in the past, my first job was in sales. I use sales tricks all the time with what I do at Rinse, whether it's with fundraising or actual sales or whatever it might be. Just being a sponge and learning is, is one of the most important things to do. Ajay, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. That was so much fun. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. As always, thank you for listening and please make sure you subscribe to get updated when new podcasts come out. I'm Will Burkhart and you've been listening to Studying Success.